the main conduit between sort of U.S. Vatican relations, if I can put it that way, is John Carroll, a Jesuit. 1780s and 90s, -hmm. especially the 90s, is when he becomes bishop. He's really concerned with building up the U.S. Catholic Church. He insists that the first bishop of the United States needs to be elected by his fellow clergymen. And this is a nod to the kind of democratic spirit that's forming in the American Republic. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné. And today, I am pleased to be joined with colleague and friend, Dr. Michael Breidenbach. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. Excellent. Glad to have you here. And we're excited today to be talking about a theme uh, that you've written a whole book on, Mm. a book with Harvard University Press called Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. Uh, So we'd love to just talk about this whole question of Right. What is the unique situation of Catholics in America, and especially in the colonial period and uh, right, the founding of both the colonies and then the founding of the United States as we understand them? I, I think right, so many of us today often really don't know our own histories. Uh, and so I'd just love you to kind of like unpack and unfold a lot of these critical moments Uh, that have really shaped the way the church in the United States, the Catholic Church in the United States, really grew. And to kind of recognize, in some ways, partly uh, the great debt we owe, uh, some of our forebears, right, and the great sacrifices, you know, they made. So anyway, so it's a great time to get to talk a little bit and a little different topic for our uh, podcast today, a little bit more church history uh, than theology proper, but in many ways recognizing Right, the history of the church is a, an important moment of understanding how we, you know, are to live our faith today. And I think it's also, by the way, a great example to see what sacrifices previous generations have made, uh, and perhaps not be so overwhelmed by our own. Absolutely, yes, I look forward to the conversation. Yes. So, you know, just to begin, I think that maybe some of our listeners. We did a podcast recently. Uh, people are welcome to listen to it on Saint Thomas More. Mm-hmm. And you, you can find that at the Catholic Theology Show. Uh, and when we think about Thomas More, the martyr, we think, uh, and, and the faithful Catholic, uh, I think a lot of people have some sense that in England, uh, with Henry VIII, there was persecution of Catholics. And I think people are aware that that persecution continued uh, in various parts throughout the 1500s, throughout the 1600s, uh, that it was difficult and often dangerous to be a Catholic in England in those centuries. Uh, there were people are familiar with, you know, uh, some of the great, uh, you know, the Jesuit saints or that that would that would come in, uh, that would often be, you know, trained in France and you know, Dewey Reims, uh, all these different elements, and uh, and at least a kind of are familiar that there was a kind of persecution going on in England. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't see that. And then they just kind of say, and then America was founded on religious toleration and freedom. There was religious persecution in England. There was religious persecution in Europe. And then the United States had religious tolerance and freedom. So could you begin a little bit of talking a little bit about how the colonies in the United States started uh, and how they were connected to some of these 
anti-Catholic oaths uh, that you discuss in your book? Absolutely. Well, thanks again for those those questions. I think the story of American colonial development is a story of people trying to come to a new world, mm-hmm. facing a lot of adversity. I mean, just getting over the ocean yes, um, yes. Is, is a trial in itself. And um, given that the stakes are so high, we would expect that the, the, the reward might be even greater. And for many of these first settlers from England, uh, they were fleeing per- religious persecution. It's not the religious persecution that we often hear of the Middle Ages. It's the religious persecution of laws that prohibit you from holding public office, mm-hmm. um, for attending church publicly, um, from uh, expressing your beliefs in, in, a, um, in a pamphlet or something like that, or proselytizing, as they would say. And sometimes that might result in burning at the stake, um, although that's fairly rare. Um, what they want is to create a new Christian republic, right, where they can live out their theology and morality as they see fit. And they think that their new world is the place to do that away from the strictures of, of church establishment and conformity. So, you know, we're often familiar with the Pur- Puritans and the Pilgrims, right? And r- fleeing from religious persecution, they establish a small settlement. It grows into a prosperous colony like Massachusetts. And eventually, you know, their sons and grandsons and so on help to found, you know, colonial laws and even, you know, Amer- the American founding. Um, up into and including the First Amendment, right, with religious toleration and, and liberty. That's often told as a Protestant story. Mm-hmm. And what I'd like to tell is the Catholic story, because they too are fleeing religious persecution. They're trying to mark a better life for themselves and their family. And they want to um, create a, a colony that is tolerant of other religious beliefs. And so oftentimes religious toleration is toleration for me and not you. Mm-hmm. What's unique about Maryland, where, where most of the Catholics reside um, in the 17th century, is that the founders of Maryland want to make it a Christian toleration, not just a you know, Protestant or even more particular you know, Puritan toleration. It is a broad brush toleration, which I think is fairly exceptional in early America. So that's the story of of these Catholics. Interesting. So especially as it relates to the founding of the colony of Maryland. Um, Before we get to uh, that chapter, could you say a little bit about, I believe it's the, uh, the 1606 English Oath of Allegiance? Yes, that's that's sort of a litmus test for Catholic loyalty in England. Mm -hmm. So there was a Catholic conspirator who wanted to blow up the parliament mm-hmm. in 1605, the so-called gunpowder plot. And his name is Guy Fox, and he's memorialized, um, you know, decades after uh, on November 5th, when they burned the Pope in effigy and so on in this anti-Catholic kind of, um, if I could call it, liturgy in the public streets to show their anti-Catholic um, credentials and to show how perfidious and and sort of um, evil Catholics can be in England, you know. And so Guy Fox becomes this kind of um, totem for people to sort of say, this is everything that's wrong with Catholicism. It's total obedience to the Pope. It's anti-English. Mm. They want to they want to blow up our institutions and in our and in our in our you know monarchy and parliament. And so a year after that gunpowder plot, it was failed, by the way, they found out before um, he did his um, uh, evil deed, King James issued an oath of allegiance, which effectively meant that whoever um, was forced to to swear this, you had to swear that um, you obey the king, 
you believe that he's the rightful king and his heirs and his successors. But critically, um, the clauses on papal power created the most controversy. You had to swear that you didn't believe the pope had the power to depose the king, that uh, if the pope or a bishop uh, excommunicated the king, then uh, the subjects could depose or murder the king, and so on and so forth. So it was trying to, James himself understood this oath as trying to separate good and bad Catholics. Mm. In other words, he held out the possibility that there could be good Catholics out there, but they would have to swear this oath. The problem is, the Pope at the time said, if you swear the oath as a Catholic, you'd be ipso facto excommunicated. Wow. So you have two really bad options if you're an yes. English Catholic mm-hmm. in 1606 onward, which is either potential treason or potential excommunication. That's the context in which mm-hmm. Maryland existed, right? Yes. So these Catholics are trying to walk a very, very fine line between trying to show their allegiance to the king and to their country and remaining faithful Catholics. Yeah. So how are they going to do that? Because every settler who goes to Maryland apparently has to swear this oath. Yes, and and just for maybe for our listeners, uh, and something I looked up to make sure I was ready with my historical dates and things. So 1606 is the oath of allegiance to the king. 1607, so one year later is when Jamestown yes. right, is basically founded. Uh, I don't know if that's the actual charter of the colony, but it's around that time period. And I think Plymouth, Massachusetts, is around 1620. So we have the at least initial founding of the colonies in Virginia and Massachusetts around this time period. So it's kind of a given that the oath of allegiance that was necessary uh, to function in a way as a citizen in England Mm -hmm. would spread to the colonies in Virginia and uh, and Massachusetts. So these colonies had the same oath of allegiance. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting as well. I was you know doing a little bit of uh, work for uh, a class I'm teaching. I was looking up John Locke and other things. And John Locke writes a famous letter on religious toleration. This is later in the 1600s. But it's interesting in that letter, he thinks we should not tolerate Catholics. That's right. Uh, So this element, if there is any religious toleration going on, it's not to include Catholics. And and we'll continue not to include Catholics. I mean, even the English um, uh, Bill of Rights uh, that we get in after the so-called Glorious Revolution, the Mm -hmm. Revolution of 1688, one of the elements is religious toleration, but it's not for Catholics. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, the whole revolution is about, you know, ousting a Catholic monarch so Protestant monarchs can come in Mm -hmm. and rule England. And so it's anti-Catholic through and through, but that still remains a really interesting and dramatic sort of narrative, which is how Catholics could even create their own colony then, given Mm -hmm. that anti-Catholicism, given that Mm -hmm. you're you're presumed dangerous until proven loyal. Yeah. So uh, in in your book, you tell uh, some wonderful stories uh, about some really, I think, overlooked people in the story. And so could you Tell me, tell us a little bit about, say, George Calvert. Sure. Uh, sure. I was really uh, captivated by mm-hmm. his story. So George Calvert was born in uh, a Yorkshire tenant farming community. Uh, he was uh, an ambitious social climber, though. So he found himself in Oxford, at Trinity College, Oxford, and studied, um, you know, the humanities and, and law. And the question is, how could you find someone who's raised Catholic, right, uh, in 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 a fairly poor setting, find himself in the halls of, of power and an elite institution. And the answer is that he conformed to the Church of England. He was forced to. 
the local authorities require that he um, get rid of all his popish books, um, the catechisms and the kind of religious books, the, the Bible that was so-called Catholic. And um, so he publicly conformed, like outwardly conformed, and that allowed him to attend Oxford because only Protestants could attend. Mm-hmm. And because of this, he was able to become a man- member of parliament and found his way up to the first secretary of state for the king. And um, this is an incredible position. This is pretty much the, the most powerful civil position in England at the time. And there's only one secretary of state. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, so, I or, think there might be two, but he's okay. the first principal sort of okay, secretary of state. Okay, he's the first state. principal. Yeah. So, you so could, that's a major yeah. position. He's the main advisor to King James. Wow. And so you think everything's going well for him, um, except in the 1630s, he decides to, um, excuse me, 1620s, he decides to uh, revert to his childhood faith. Now, I actually think, given the historical evidence that I found, that uh, he was he was Catholic-ish all along. This is very, very difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, public conformity and private belief. But um, there's an interesting letter that suggests that he's asking for a Peter Paul Rubens painting. And uh, in that diplomatic correspondence, the person obtaining that artwork for him uh, says that he's one of us, i.e. Catholic, because they saw some statues on his desk. Mm-hmm. And so these little indications of your Catholicism could be, could be um, windows into your private faith. But he publicly shows his Catholicism now, and that means he cannot serve the king anymore, right? Because of this oath of allegiance. Wow! So that his his willingness on that to profess or to right act in accordance with his faith lost him the second highest ranking yes. position in England. Yes. So wow. it is a it's a career killer. But what's fascinating about George Calvert is he's indefatigably loyal to the king. Mm. So he's he can't profess this oath. But uh, the king knows that he's been loyal all throughout. And he's one of the so-called good Catholics, right, that James wants to sort of um, tolerate, right, if he can. And so he gives him a kind of consolation prize, which is the colonies in uh, the New World. So the first colony is Avalon, which is in uh, Newfoundland, uh, modern-day Newfoundland in Canada. And it's a failure. I mean, the winter is just too harsh. Uh, More than half of the people die the first winter. And so he uh, seeks warmer environs uh, to, to Virginia. That's Virginia here just means like a, a huge territory mm-hmm. in the south of yeah. North America. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean Virginia is today. And the Virginians say, uh, well, you have, to t- you have to sign this oath of allegiance. And he says, actually, I've come prepared this time. And he has a revised oath, oath of allegiance. And um, if you look at the archives in the British Library, it's missing. But if you go to an archive um, in, in London, an ecclesiastical archive, um, you find it. It's a transcription that priest did. And so I looked at that oath and found that he's trying to figure out, again, this, this tightrope, right? Um, a way to sort of um, show his Catholic allegiance, but also show his English allegiance. And so his revision of the oath is just to, to get rid of the clauses about papal authority, the ones that are, are particularly mm, sort of yes. um, problematic. Uh, retain others, like, you know, if you have an excommunicated king, subjects can murder them. Well, that, that seems just extreme, right? Yes. So he, he says, fine, I'll wear, I'm willing to swear that. The Virginians say, well, we don't have authorization to accept your revised oath. We have the one from the king. So they sent him back to London. And the incredible thing, again, is that the king is willing to allow George Calvert to establish a new colony. And that's what we know as Maryland. And it's named after the next king, Charles and his, his wife, 
Henrietta Maria. Wow. And so when, uh, so as he's doing this, he has then, uh, he has a whole new colony. Yes. Yes. Uh, right next to Virginia. A, a, a Catholic. <laughs> yes. yes. Who has not yet sworn the oath. Right. Right. Who has lost his position has now a colony called Maryland. That's right. right. So how does he develop it? And I, I know his, uh, I believe it's right, his son, Cecil, yes. uh, participates. And how does that happen? So uh, George Calvert dies a few weeks before the final seal is set on that royal charter. Mm-hmm. And so it is bequeathed to his son, Cecil, who is now the second Lord Baltimore. And that's where we get, you know, Baltimore City and mm-hmm. so on, named after uh, this, this aristocratic line. And Cecil is the one who really gets Maryland going. Right. He's the one who, although never actually sets foot in Maryland, it has to be said, Uh, he's a kind of absentee landlord, Mm -hmm. Um, but he's governing from London and he has to confront this oath of allegiance problem again because there are now settlers who are going to board the Ark and the Dove, these two ships that come to Maryland in the first uh, settlement. And there are ship searchers going around, going to each person, 100 plus people and saying, you have to swear this oath, you have to swear this oath. And in the archives, I found that some people didn't. Probably because So even of, though they yeah. have a, they know that the, right, the Lord Baltimore of this chartered colony mm-hmm. is Catholic, they're making it very clear that he can't bring Catholics who haven't sworn that oath That's into right. the colonies. Right, yeah. The king wants mm-hmm. the so-called good Catholics, right? Mm-hmm. The ones who are going to be loyal. Mm-hmm. And so what I found is that some people refuse to sign this oath, uh, and then they actually just uh, surreptitiously go to a different island, the island of White, which is on the south of the English coast, and they, they board it there. Mm-hmm. And so they actually just subvert the whole oath allegiance thing. Now, but Cecil Calvert has a political problem, which is that now the rumor is that some of his colonists haven't sworn this thing. And so this is going to be a dangerous papist colony. So what he says is everyone has to sign an oath of allegiance. An oath of allegiance. Not the oath of allegiance, but an oath of allegiance. And so, like his father, he devises a new oath. And what's incredible about this oath is that it passes, passes muster. And it's a very, very simple oath. It basically just says, we will be allegiance to the king. And doesn't mention the pope at all. So this is the the loyally solution to the yes, to the yes. deeply sort of um, theological political problem that presents itself since 1606. So Maryland, I would say this: it's not a established Catholic colony. Mm. It's an English colony in a Protestant empire that is founded by a Catholic that is tolerant of Protestants and Catholics. So Cecil Calvert's letter to his brother, who's the governor, says that. You know, both Protestants and Catholics on the ship and and that land um, should tolerate one another, should be as peaceable as possible. This is the kind of mood and culture he's creating. And then that is codified later on in the Maryland Toleration Act, which says that anyone professing a belief in Jesus Christ uh, should not be molested uh, or disenfranchised for the free exercise of religion. Now, I can't prove that the free exercise of religion clause is the inspiration for the First Amendment. I I think it's a coincidence, but it just shows it's not just religious worship or belief, it's it's exercise, right? Which is much more inc- sort of an encompassing kind of phrase. That would include then, right, public displays, Absolutely. Uh, schools or whatever, yes. hospitals, yes, these sorts of elements that yeah. belong to the free exercise of religion. And at this point, the only colony 
uh, in the 17th century that would extend that to Catholics. That's right. Rhode Island might have a, a distinction on this, except that their, their law is very vague. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, and um, there there weren't uh, a Catholic priest until much later. So Maryland is the first systematic yeah. law for religious toleration in early America, and that's in uh, 1649. Yes, right? so that's mm-hmm. 40 years after the original oath. Yes, about so it's also a, a lot of a long time of suffering, right? A lot is, of yeah. a lot of individual English Catholics, and if they're going to Maryland hoping for something, they're not really sure they're going to find anything better as well. Is that correct? Well, I think, until that point, I think there's a culture of toleration even before that Toleration Act in Maryland. But you're yeah. right to say mm-hmm. in England, there's still mm-hmm. there's still sort of outright or, very, or more likely quiet persecution, yeah. right? The kind of persecution that says, you're a second-class citizen. You, maybe we'll allow you to go to Mass, but it has to be underground. And we're going to persecute your Jesuit missionaries who are going about the country and so on. So yeah. um, in Maryland, there is a refuge, but there's still tension, right? I mean, it isn't as if, um, you know, these laws and this culture uh, makes everything smooth. But it is distinctive for creating a kind of tone and some legal bite to it to say, you can't, the Maryland Toleration Act is so extreme that you can't even say a derogatory term against someone. You can't use the term <laughs> Jesuit pejoratively. Interesting. Um, you can't yeah. say, you know, um, uh, Mary's name in vain. Like these, these are, it's kind of like a hate speech legislation, if I can put it that way. Interesting. Right? Interesting. So he really privileged peace yeah. and unity among Christians. Now, uh, Catholic priests could not be seen in public. Correct in, in in England. That's right. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. in the other colonies. So, were priests were Jesuits allowed in Maryland? They were. They're invited by Cecil Calvert himself. So Andrew White, S.J., uh, celebrates the first Mass in what became you know the United States in the thirteen original colonies. Mass was obviously celebrated in Florida. Yes. Um, yes. But that was Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, this is an extraordinary moment when uh, these Jesuits. Uh, he had a companion, I think, as well, uh, could celebrate uh, Mass. And then the Protestants had their own service. So in some ways, it looks like a typical Sunday in, in America, but realize how extraordinary that is, that they were able to do that publicly without persecution. Yeah, thanks so much for going through that. I'd like to, we're going to take a little break, and when we get back, I'd, I'd like you to walk us a little bit through uh, some of the uh, ways in which the colony of Maryland develops mm-hmm. under the Carrolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also a little bit, let's, I want to turn a little bit to um, how does this impact in a way, the way we understand kind of Catholics in America today? Great. Uh, because I think there are still legacies, um, both of kind of suspicion and, and uh, limited toleration, perhaps that maybe uh, we've, we've experienced over the last uh, couple hundred years as well. Very good. listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the show, and today I'm delighted to have Michael Breidenbach, professor of history at Ave Maria University, the author of Our Dear Bought, Liberty, Catholics, and Religious Toleration in Early America. 
And we've been discussing how Catholics came to be in these British colonies when as a whole, England at that time uh, required uh, its citizens in order to exercise uh, public office uh, or really public religion uh, to swear an oath of allegiance uh, to the English king and in many ways also an oath of at least seemingly disallegiance uh, to the Pope. It's interesting, by the way, I should uh, mention just as a, I, I grew up in Maryland, I grew up in Carroll County, and I always had some vague notion that I'd heard something about Carroll being maybe a Catholic. I knew a little bit about Maryland, uh, but, but very little. So it's kind of fun to go back to learn more about this story. Uh, so tell us about, right, there are two famous Carrolls, Charles Carroll the Settler, and then the a later one, I guess his son, Charles Carroll of Annapolis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, right, how do they kind of take up the mantles that came from the Calverts? So Charles Carroll, the so-called settler, is the one who came from England just around the revolution of 1688 um, uh, to Maryland. And he saw the writing on the wall. I mean, this was, a, this was going to be a, a Protestant revolution mm -hmm. that was going to uh, effectively mean that the, the Catholic James II would no longer be king and uh, any of his advisors and so forth would be therefore out of office. The Privy Council, the kind of, you know, sort of the aristocrats and so on and advisors who made up his cabinet, if you will, um, would be out of office. And he happened to be a clerk for one of the Privy Council members. And so he sees that within a few months, he'll be out of a job. And he gets um, a very nice position of being attorney general for Maryland. Uh, he's Catholic. Um, he, his ancestry is from Ireland. Um, and it's the kind of Irish ancestry that was much more willing to um, accommodate English settlement or colonization mm -hmm. of Ireland. And so um, he's willing to play, as he's already shown, to, to play ball with, with English, right? And so he sees in the Maryland design, or the project of the Maryland colony, a kind of opportunity to live his English Irish English identity, um, but still is Catholic. And so he immigrates uh, in order to be the, the sort of lawyer um, in Maryland and faces persecution because as soon as the revolution, revolution of 1680 happens, the Maryland government uh, takes over. The Protestants take over Maryland government. They, they get rid of the, um, uh, the Maryland Toleration Act for Catholics. So things, wow. things mirror in some so ways. The Toleration Act Yes. In Maryland that we spoke about is the one that really allowing Catholics to have this free exercise of religion and other Christians mm -hmm. um, really lasts then from 1649 to mm -hmm. 1688. It's about 50 years of, yeah. of, of Christian toleration. Mm -hmm. And so um, Charles Carroll, uh, the settler, was expecting this sort of tolerant society. Uh, he doesn't get it. And he agitates for legal reforms for this and so on, is unsuccessful. His son, Charles Carroll of Annapolis, Annapolis, Maryland, um, continues the fight, actually much more aggressively than his father did, um, but no less successfully, um, so much so that he's willing to even immigrate to French territory, what we would call Louisiana, right, uh, the Louisiana territory, yes. which would mean uh, a huge deficit to his estate and so on and so forth. But he's willing to do that because he feels like he's not a full sort of citizen, right? He's not... Um, he's disenfranchised. Uh, his son, Charles Kerr of Carrollton, can't go to a Catholic school. He can't hold public office mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. 
So um, they can live a quiet Catholic life. It's not like an act of persecution and burning at the stake, mm-hmm. but it, it does mean that a very wealthy person cannot have the advantages of that sort of status in politics and, and law. So all that uh, history of Maryland and the vicissitudes of you know um, Catholics status in English um, political yeah. culture uh, comes to Charles Carroll of Carrollton. And he's the one who eventually signs the Declaration of Independence, the only Catholic to do so. Yeah. But he inherits this family history mm-hmm. and this colonial history, and it really animates him uh, to, to do something about it. Yeah. So how does, how does that happen? Because we've kind of left us at the t- end where whatever, if, if they had any space to be Catholic publicly, it's evaporated. Right. How then does it recover so that we end up with a Catholic signing the Declaration of Independence? It is a pretty dramatic transformation. And I think there are a lot of factors. I don't want to say that, uh, you know, it's just Catholics, you know, uh, their agency and their perseverance that led to this. I think it also required sort of a broad uh, toleration, right, among Christians and deists and, you know, all sorts of people in the American founding generation to get to a point where we can say, we can leave some of these litmus tests and you know persecution histories aside, right? And part of it's just pragmatic, right? There's no, there's going to be no Church of the United States. It's just impossible and a kind of sociological thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't repristinate yeah. Anglicanism, although it was tried in some states for a little bit, right? Yeah, like there, there are South Carolina. That's right. Right has yeah. I think some kind of Anglican form of statehood state religious until like 1840 or so? They, um, the, the, the oldest one I think was New Hampshire okay. in the 1830s. Okay. Um, but it depends on what you mean by establishment, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of the colonies, uh, later states, did have some remnant of mm-hmm. church establishment, and a lot of that was Protestant. Yeah. So that was a matter of the states, though, right? Given, given the diversity, mm-hmm. the kind of social fact of religious pluralism, to demand mm-hmm. conformity at a national level would be impossible. And I see. So there are a lot of factors mm-hmm. that sort of uh, feed into a kind of First Amendment right mm-hmm. result. But I, I want to insist, though, that even if they had a broad toleration, why include Catholics, yeah. given the anti-Catholic history? And it's a very particular argument against Catholics. You mentioned John Locke. What he says is they deliver themselves up to a foreign prince. And if you look at the Declaration of Independence, well, you're not just declaring independence from King George III, right? You're declaring independence from any foreign power, right? And you look at the oath uh, for naturalization uh, to be a U.S. citizen. Likewise, they abjure any sort of foreign prince, potentate power, and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's the particular argument against Catholics. It's really, it's, it's, yes, it's about, you know, doctrines about the Eucharist and so on, but really politically it's about, you know, foreign authority. And so how do we get there? Well, you know, these... Carol Catholics, right, agree with George and Cecil Calvert. They they don't think the allegiance they have to the Pope um, leads to uh, being a bad American, right? They don't think that their allegiance to the Pope is total uh, for temporal affairs, civil affairs, right? There's a kind of, let's call it juridical separation, a, a kind of, to put it in medieval terms, a two swords theory, mm-hmm. right, in which the Pope has spiritual authority and, you know, your rightful Political authority has has authority to make laws in, in a civil manner, right? And so um, that's the kind of bargain that they insist that Catholics can make. And so that's what allows Charles Carroll to sort of present himself as a as a good Catholic American. Now, as they're doing that, um, 
And within the, does that mean then, say, after uh, the Declaration of Independence, the uh, uh, eventual Bill of Rights, do our Catholics then kind of, are they relatively safe to practice their faith publicly in the United in the colonies? For the most part, yeah. I mean, it's 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 an incredible transformation to go from, you know, persecution of priests yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, you know Catholics can't hold public office to. Um, in many, many states, there are just a few states that don't allow Catholics to serve in public office, mm-hmm. right? But if you look at Article 6 in the U.S. Constitution, it says there's no religious test for public office. Mm-hmm. How could you when you already have Catholics at the Constitutional Convention yeah. framing that article, yeah. right? It, it would be the embarrassment uh, of, of recusing two Catholics from that convention if you want to say that, you know, we, we can't have Catholics serving. So, um, you know, th- there's a kind of moment especially because, you know, America's allied with a French uh, Catholic country to mm-hmm. win the Revolutionary War. They want to curry favor with Catholic Canadians and so on. There's a lot of other political pragmatic mm-hmm. reasons too, but but all the same, you have John Adams saying he's a he's, you know, Charles Carroll of Carrollton is Catholic, yet a zealous supporter of our of our cause. Mm-hmm. The yet is interesting, right? There's the, he senses there's some kind of tension there. But knows that Charles Carroll and his second cousin John Carroll, who became the bishop, are are good patriots, yeah. right? They want America to to you know f- flourish and prosper. Now, at the same time, that say you seemingly have Catholics legally and politically, I wouldn't, I don't, you know, but begin to have kind of status mm-hmm. uh, in uh, the United States. You also, of course, have the uh, Rome uh, that's somewhat suspicious of. Catholics that are right swearing their allegiance to the you know the president of the United States. So I know you, you talk a little bit. Could you say a little bit about kind of John Carroll and right, sure, how sure. how did these you know American Catholics not only have to satisfy America but also somehow convince Rome that they're genuinely Catholic as well? Yeah, the the main conduit between sort of U.S. Vatican relations, if I could put it that way, is is John Carroll, yeah. uh, a Jesuit, actually ex-Jesuit because the Jesuit order was suppressed during this time, but he's a priest. Mm-hmm. And, and what year is this around? Uh, um, for for John Carroll's sort of um, uh, correspondence with Rome, it's it's towards the end of the 18th century. Okay. So uh, the 1780s and 90s, mm-hmm. especially the 90s, is when he's, yeah. he's really, this is when he becomes bishop. He's really concerned with building up the U.S. Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and there are a few instances that um, show the kind of compromise he wants to make. One is that he insists that the first bishop of the United States, Catholic bishop of the United States, needs to be elected by his fellow clergymen. Mm. And this is a nod to the kind of democratic spirit that's um, forming in the American Republic. He doesn't want it to be the case that the Pope is the one appointing him because that looks like foreign interference he wants to have you know american catholic priests electing him now obviously it has to be approved by the holy see um, but that move is a kind of uh, subtle or not so subtle sort of way to show that american institutions and the catholic church can be in harmony with one another Uh, the other instance is is when john carroll has to explain that the u.s congress doesn't have to uh, approve uh, the the installation of a bishop because the Holy See is thinking, well, every time we have a bishop in Western Europe, 
the king or whatever reigning uh, political authority there is has to approve of it. And so the papal nuncio in Paris asked Benjamin Franklin to ask the U.S. Congress, can you please approve John Carroll becoming a bishop? And Franklin's like, this is not in the ambit of, of congressional power. Interesting. And John Carroll agrees. He said, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually quite angry mm-hmm. that the Holy See is insisting on this. And Congress dutifully says, and it's the first instance that I see of church-state relations, right, even before the First Amendment, they say, uh, we have no power in mm-hmm. purely spiritual affairs. So pick whatever bishop you want. And the third thing is, is if, if you've been uh, to, to Baltimore and seen the uh, basilica there, that architecture is a very conscious choice on Carroll and his trustees' part. He was presented two uh, designs. One was a kind of uh, neo-Gothic design, and one was what you see, a kind of neo-Roman with some interesting elements mm-hmm. uh, tacked onto it. And Carroll chose the neo-Roman design. Now, he asked Benjamin Henry Latrobe to be the architect, the same architect for the U.S. Capitol redesign. And the neo-Roman design is much more conducive to the kind of American political and religious Mm -hmm. landscape that we Mm -hmm. find in Baltimore and and Washington, D.C., that kind of federal style. And so Latrobe actually wanted the Gothic design. He thought that was more fitting for Catholics. Mm -hmm. But um, Carroll, although he liked Gothic architecture and Baroque, he thought this is much more sort of in harmony with the kind of Catholicism he wanted to present to his American patriots. Wow. So that's the same cathedral that's in Baltimore today, that's right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I think I, I attended a, my uh, high school graduation in that same building. Uh, it's a wonderful, and, uh, wonderful church. It is, and yeah. that is interesting. It does have, it has a kind of grandeur, um, but more the grandeur of kind of uh, soft, big, round domes, more similar to the uh, you know, to the capital. That's right, and uh, and that Romanesque. Approach. And it's an interesting so sort of kind of fits within yeah. the American landscape, but still is you know one hundred percent Catholic. It is. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's cruciform. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, has the mm-hmm. really standard sort of yeah. quotations of of earlier Christian architecture. Okay, yeah, that's great. Uh, so just making sure we have a little time to. How do you see this? How does this legacy somewhat? Kind of shape the way Catholics should um, view their political uh, circumstances today. Well, I think this story doesn't end you know, with with uh, the Carols. Yes, um, it continues in the 19th and 20th century, and the tensions don't go away. I don't mm-hmm. want to say everything was resolved by yeah. the time we get to the you know 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, the tensions continue. In some ways, they magnify. Uh, with um, the you know a massive wave of, of Catholic immigrants, so by the time we get to 1850, Catholicism is the largest single denomination in the United States, yeah. and um, the Know Nothing Party and the Baba riots and all these other sort of um, historical moments um, witness to the fact that Catholics still feel that uh, they're not fully part of the American you know, sort of uh, ideas, institutions, yeah. and so on, um, or that at least Protestants don't think so, or at yeah. least some Protestants mm-hmm. don't think so. This is like Al Smith runs for president in 1912, is that correct? Yeah, so the, in the early 1900s, you have Al Smith. Uh, Who's a Catholic. That's right, Catholic governor of New York who runs for president. Um, he's defeated, and, you know, part of the histori- historical explanation is that it's because of anti-Catholic prejudice. And so, you know, by the time we get to JFK, we had the same kind of arguments presented to him, and he gives that famous address in 1960 in Houston when he says that I do not speak for the church and the church doesn't speak for me. That's this kind of uh, rhetorical move that he makes, a sort of complete separation. 
John JFK goes too far mm-hmm. w- relative to what the Carols are suggesting. But that's the sort of rhetorical move I think he feels he needs to make in order to settle what they would call the Catholic question. Mm-hmm. And he wins. And um, or at least it doesn't win because of that necessarily, but yeah. he puts that to rest in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I think after Vatican II, there's a kind of settlement there. I think what we're feeling now is is maybe an unsettlement of the settlement, right? Yeah. There's certain moments, a lot of Supreme Court decisions have to do with Catholicism, right? Uh, Catholic um, uh, adoption agencies, you know, uh, the um, HHS mandate for Catholic institutions, and not just Catholic, but it often is the case that these Supreme Court decisions have to do with Catholic institutions. The number of Catholics on the Supreme Court and in Congress, the current president is Catholic. And so, you know, these, it's, it feels like it's bubbling up again, mm-hmm. right? These, these tensions uh, of, of how Catholics should understand their, their let's call it dual, dual, dual identities. Yeah, and, and maybe one lesson, in, you know, just or at least observations mm-hmm. that we can draw is, one is that sometimes these things never really were, I mean, they, there was no way to kind of settle them neatly, right? That's the right. people like the Carols argued for the best, the best legal protection they could get at the time. They often failed, and then they argued for more. And then, you know, and, and at some point, due to kind of circumstances outside their control, um, you know, they were able to be successful. Who knows? It's like if they hadn't actually become, if they hadn't declared independence from England, there might not have been the occasion to have to actually, like, be more self-conscious in their own toleration of one another. That's right. There is a movement right now mm-hmm. among some Catholics to sort of, as it were, double down mm-hmm. and say, we should really try to instantiate as much as possible Catholicism in politics, mm-hmm. right? And it comes in various, you know, names and, and ideologies. Um, and then there's some that just say we should just remove ourselves completely from politics. Mm. And if, if you have those kind of um, two poles, I think what what the history that I show in the book is suggesting is that there's a middle way that is all about, as you say, negotiation and not compromising one's principles necessarily, although that could happen too, but negotiation, trying to sort of work within the world, mm-hmm. right, and try to improve your lot as much as possible that presented possibilities for evangelization and so on. And, you know, I think Pope Leo XIII, who's often cited as someone who wants, you know, the uh, revival of, you know, um, Christian principles and politics and so on, but he also recognizes when he's talking about the United States in particular, that a lot of good has come out of um, Catholicism in the United States, that this kind of liberty um, from the state for the church to govern itself according to its own principles um, can do a lot of good. He says it's not the ideal, right, in a kind of metaphysical picture, but given the circumstances that you have, it has extraordinary benefits. And I think the Carols would be very happy to hear that yeah. uh, element because they would see the efforts that they did in this kind of legal and political cultural compromising or negotiation bearing fruit. Yeah, and, and we have this, right, the iron, not the irony, but sort of an irony, uh, maybe providential smile uh, that in a way, in the United States, in which Catholics were largely suspect, either officially or unofficially, for most of the time period of the United States, we saw develop probably the greatest number of Catholics, greatest Catholic school system, educational system, 
in the world. The, the, the largest charity in the world. The largest yeah. charity in the world, both for education and for hospitals. That's right? right. The Catholic hospital system mm-hmm. has grown up and uh, and right all these, you know, uh, you know, works of mercy, spiritual and corporal. Uh, and in a way that the Catholic Church in America, right, which of course is just a small part of a worldwide global Catholic Church, but nonetheless uh, has uh, been able to be a source of uh, kind of, I mean, somewhat spiritual renewal uh, and even, you know, financial support for mm-hmm. Catholics all over the world. And so it is kind of uh, that that the labors in a way that the uh, carols made at least did open up soil yes. uh, that could bear fruit uh, without ever really kind of resolving it entirely. And it seems to me that even, right, the free exercise of religion, you might say, well, uh, what exactly does that mean? And when can the church do that? And when can it not? And what's a religion and what's not a religion? All those, in a way, are not totally answered. And I think to this day, those sorts of questions create legal challenges and legal problems. Uh, But it's also a great way, maybe politically, sometimes we can't ever, like we can't ever kind of square the circle, right? We have to respond to the political circumstances of the day, trying to create as much freedom as we can for the exercise of our faith, and also take comfort that that is temporary. That's right. Right. I mean, in any particular um, government uh, situation, right? Uh, that the um, this element that you know that the what the church really promises is uh, is is something beyond right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the current political order. Yeah. Yeah. Politics is is an art of the possible, and mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. you have to deal with the circumstances you're given with it. You. Mm-hmm. It seems. Um, well, it's revolutionary to to, yeah. to impose right mm-hmm. a kind of theoretical ideal yeah. onto a situation that yeah. may, may mm-hmm. sort of uh, resist it. And so, I think the story told here is is uh, one of people trying to find the best way forward that doesn't compromise their faith, mm-hmm. but um, but but in some ways try to uh, create the conditions for other people right to to find meaning in life and to live out their faith well. That's great. Well, thank you so much for uh, the wonderful book uh, that you've written and for talking with us about it today. I just want to ask you a couple questions before we, or three questions before we uh, leave. Just first, what's a book you've been reading? Well, one book that I've been rereading uh-huh. is uh, Homer's Odyssey. And um, I've taught this a lot in, in, my, in my classroom. Yes. And um, it's just a delight to, to reread it, um, really with an eye for uh, some of the major themes that come out of that book. So uh, the return home yeah. is uh, really powerful and really sets the precedent for epics and uh, drama afterwards. And, um, you know, when you look at the Odyssey in light of uh, later works, right, you think of like St. Augustine's Confessions and, you know, Dante's Inferno and so on, you get the sense that that, that, that return to home is such an important, indeed spiritual, yeah. right, uh, theme as well. Um, so it's just fun to read again. Yes, yes. And of course, now you're reading it as a father. Yes. Right? Yes. And uh, right, Odysseus yes. is coming back to yes. help his son. Right, right. It's a, right. It's a glorious moment yeah. in the story. Uh, what's a spiritual practice uh, that you do maybe on a daily basis, just, you know, one to kind of help find meaning and stay grounded? Yeah. So um, one is the first thing that I try to do every morning, which is to... Um, be humble, like go down on my knees mm. and um, and offer the day up to to God. And uh, that going down to the the hummus, right, the humbleness mm-hmm. of the ground uh, and say, like, this is this day is a gift. 
rather than something to be conquered or something like that. Um, It sort of sets the tone and orients me, hopefully, um, to to something that's other directed and uh, and so on. Um, You know, it's interesting because that's been a long standing practice among people of many faiths. Uh, but it's it's actually now seeping into the kind of psych- psychology, self-help. I've, I'm told, like, you know, people are saying, make your bed. The first thing you do, make mm-hmm. your bed. You know, like, mm-hmm. do something concrete. And so in some ways, there's kind of an alignment with with all these kind of pieces of advice. But but that's one thing I do. That's wonderful. And uh, finally, so this is right, a Catholic theology podcast. Mm-hmm. So what's a belief you held about God uh, that maybe you discovered at one point was false? Mm-hmm. And what was the mm-hmm. truth you discovered? You know, I don't know if it, if I, I don't want to put it in terms of an antagonism, but one mm-hmm. of the things that, that I discovered is, is uh, let's put it this way, the sort of divine filiation, mm. right? That we are sons and daughters of God. That's a very powerful, um, not just metaphor, yes. <laughs> um, but metaphysical reality mm-hmm. that, again, if you're thinking about fundamental orientation, right? And kind of like the, the scaffolding one's life. I think that's so powerful to see. Because, you know, you can you can derive so many interesting things from it, right? Not just that, you know, if you think of it as, as, as father, right? That sometimes he'll want you to do better and might be a little bit angry with you. But it's not just God is angry, right? Mm-hmm. It's also God is merciful. Like, mm-hmm. if you begin to think of it as like a good parent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then a lot of spiritual consolations can come through that. So um, that, that divine filiation is something that, that has really spoke to me. I don't know if there was an opposition to something else, but uh-huh. but it's it's been very consoling. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, again, our guest has been Dr. Michael Breidenbach, author of Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America with Harvard University Press and a member of our history department here at Ave Marie University. Uh, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.